for the rule of law and for democracy to be resilient, we need to be consistent in our approaches. We need to follow the law. We need to be level-headed, especially in cases like terrorism, when the circumstances are triggering us to behave otherwise. Hi, and welcome to Horsehair Wigs this month with me, Evelyn Clafferty, and Irish Rule of Law International. On the show, we're talking to international human rights lawyer, Doreen Chen. She speaks about her work with various authorities across the world, supporting them on their human rights compliance in their counter-terrorism responses. In recent times, there's been what we would say are shortcomings in the extent to which these processes have sometimes adhered to human rights law. We've heard a lot over the years about extensive detention, extraordinary rendition, torture of suspects and so on. Doreen also set up and runs a non-profit, Destination Justice. It's an organisation advancing human rights and the rule of law and works primarily with human rights defenders, people who work peacefully to promote and protect human rights. Doreen links the crackdown on human rights defenders globally with a worldwide decline in the rule of law. What we see is that laws and policies are being weaponized by authoritarian governments. And then there's the fact that we're in a so-called post-truth era. And I think that this has fragmented society even further. While Doreen talks about a new reality in which facts are being disregarded, her insights into the current political context in Thailand can't be ignored. And she talks about the situation there for human rights defenders. Up until today, thousands of protesters face up to hundreds of years in prison individually for exercising fundamental freedoms. Really delighted to have Doreen with us on the show this month, who starts out telling us why she decided to pursue justice work. It's in my blood. I come from a social justice family going back generations. And the best example I have of that is my parents. They lived through world wars, civil wars, revolutions, displacement. They moved all over Asia. And then they had to start all over from scratch as migrants in Australia in the 1970s, where they were rootless and alone. And, you know, it's Australia in the 1970s. They weren't always very welcome. Um, But despite all of that, my parents' approach has always been to commit to make other people's lives better and to establish those values in us, their children. So it was kind of natural that I would end up becoming a human rights defender and being drawn to working with other human rights defenders. So that's the first answer. But the second one, um, let me explain by just saying, first of all, that Destination Justice, we work specifically with human rights defenders in Asia. And I think... Part of the reason why we do this is because of my own experiences. About 15 years ago, I worked with Amnesty International to co-found a network which we called the Asia-Pacific Youth Network. And that network connected something like 10,000 young human rights defenders in Asia, working with different organizations on many different causes, including in countries where Amnesty can't work. And what I realized was that many of those colleagues in the network faced extraordinary risks in doing what they do and that you know the fundamental freedoms that I enjoyed as an Aussie couldn't be taken for granted as they really didn't and still don't exist everywhere. So these human rights defenders had been harassed, surveilled and attacked and so had their families and some had even been disappeared temporarily. But I mean most relevantly for this answer 
several of those human rights defenders had been arrested and charged with what we call slap suits. So slap suits are strategic lawsuits against public participation. They're efforts by authorities to try to stop human rights defenders from operating by sidelining them. So you can do that by putting them in jail, bankrupting them through spurious fines or alleged tax fraud, things like that, or just occupying all of their time and breaking their spirit through litigation. So, you know, I I realized that the harassment against human rights defenders in Asia and everywhere increasingly had this sinister legal dimension to it, which is something that we actually call lawfare. And this became like a light bulb moment for me, where I realized that my skills as an international human rights lawyer could dovetail with my affinity for working with human rights defenders in Asia, and that there was a need that we could fill there. So as a result, what we do at Destination Justice is that we try to help human rights defenders who are at risk in Asia by providing them with holistic or wraparound support. So this can include things like capacitating work, especially around understanding international human rights law standards and mechanisms that can help them, offering mentoring and networking, and also taking on occasional cases for them. Can you outline some of those occasional cases that you're talking about? Um, Okay, I'll give you one example, which is a bit of a good news story, a rare good news story. So our first case at Destination Justice was for 17 Vietnamese human rights defenders. And these uh, folks were from a religious community. And as part of their ministry, they had been promoting social justice causes. So what we're talking about here is what you can imagine. It was peaceful and totally innocuous activities like handing out leaflets. For doing so, these people were charged with offences equivalent to treason and sedition, and they were sentenced to between three and 20 years in prison in highly unfair closed trials. So when we learned about this case, what we did is that we reported that case to the United Nations to a group called the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, and we made the argument to them that these folks had been arbitrarily detained due to their exercise of fundamental freedoms which should have been protected under Vietnam's international law obligations. The UN considered this, they actually asked the Vietnamese government for a response and everything, and they ultimately issued a decision agreeing with us and declaring that the detention was indeed unlawful. But... Typically, these decisions are non-binding, so states can't be forced to do anything about them, and usually they don't. However, in this case, some time after that came out, the human rights defenders started to be released from prison, ostensibly for other reasons, like good behaviour and so on, but there was definitely a causality with the decision and the eventual outcome, and they were ultimately sent into exile overseas, which is what happens typically when a human rights defender gets released in Vietnam. They don't go back into the community. So that is, as I said, a rare good news story. Most of those cases don't go anywhere because the United Nations receives many more cases than they can process in a year. So, you know, even to get over the first hurdle is very difficult. And even if you do that, and even if you get a decision in your favour, As I said, whether or not the government is going to react to such a decision when it's non-binding, it's it's very unlikely. But even if that's the case, we still take on cases like that because it creates a record of what's happened. It creates a record of the injustice. And to the human rights defender and their community, it tells them that they're not alone and there is some power in that solidarity. Yeah, you're right in terms of there being a record of it because um, I'm just looking at the most recent statistics, actually, that we have 
the killings of human rights defenders globally. And that's from an Irish human rights group called Frontline Defenders. So according to them, there were 401 deaths of human rights defenders in 2022 across 26 different countries, compared with 358 deaths in 38 countries registered in 2021. Why do you think there's an upturn in the killing of human rights defenders globally? Uh, This is a great question, and I'm actually going to answer it with my own statistics because I'm also a social scientist and I love data. So at the same time that there's been an upturn in the killing of human rights defenders, which there absolutely has been, there's also been a worldwide decline in the rule of law. So according to the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Index, there's been a rule of law recession since 2016. And that index looks at things like constraints on government powers, corruption, openness of governments, respect for fundamental rights, order and security, justice, and so on. So what I think we're seeing is that authoritarianism is on the rise and that democracy is unfortunately fragile. And I believe that the threats that human rights defenders face are a direct outcome of that situation. I mentioned lawfare earlier. What we see is that laws and policies are being weaponized by authoritarian governments. And then there's the fact that we're in a so-called post-truth era. And I think that this has fragmented society even further. And so what you see, you have human rights defenders who try to advocate for the rights of oftentimes marginalized communities or to correct injustices that have happened. And so in doing so, they're increasingly offending powerful individuals and organizations in that process, and they become a target accordingly. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, to to bring in those figures. And, And as you said, when we see such a decline in rule of law globally, There can be no surprise, really, that there is then an increase in a crackdown of anyone and anything that would empower a level of justice and democracy. Colombia has consecutively been the deadliest country in the world for human rights defenders, with 186 uh, people killed. In fact, five countries, Colombia, Ukraine, Mexico, Brazil and Honduras, accounted for over 80% of human rights defenders' deaths registered. And they are just the registered deaths. Many believe that there are multiple more. You do have a specific focus on Asian countries, as you've said. We have talked about it before, you and I, in the past. And you have mentioned Thailand as a place in which the lives of human rights defenders are at risk. Again, do you think that that's in line with the trends you've just mentioned in terms of there being a decline in the rule of law globally? (sighs) Yes, unfortunately, I think it is a very good example of the sort of thing that's happening to human rights defenders in many places. So just to give a bit of background, in 2014, a military junta installed itself in Thailand. And Now, while Thailand has ostensibly shifted back towards a democracy, the military and its allies still retain significant control, including a constitutionally mandated minimum number of seats in the Senate. So from 2020 onwards, there were huge peaceful protests that took place, sometimes with hundreds of thousands of demonstrators, hundreds of thousands. And it was mostly a youth-driven movement, and they were calling for political reforms and reforms to the monarchy. And actually, I shouldn't even be speaking about that in the past tense, because even though the demonstrations have died down, that sentiment and those movements continue to this day. However, these protesters are facing something that I mentioned earlier, slap suits or strategic lawsuits against public participation. So 
Up until today, thousands of protesters face up to hundreds of years in prison individually for exercising fundamental freedoms. They also face persecution outside the courtroom as well. So we've seen a lot of online and offline harassment, including by pro-military and pro-monarchy vigilantes, and reportedly as well from military-run troll farms. I saw the same kinds of treatment towards my colleagues 15 years ago when I was working on that network with Amnesty International, and we see the same kinds of attacks time and time again, as unfortunately what we've now learned is that these are classic moves in the playbook of how to undermine and threaten human rights defenders and the causes they're trying to advance. What are military-run troll farms? There are troll farms that exist apparently in a number of countries around the world where, in this case, soldiers, but it essentially can be, you know, civil servants of any kind, are put to work putting out counter-information or disinformation about a specific issue or even, in this case, reportedly targeting an individual using various fake online accounts that they've cultivated to be able to do precisely this kind of work. And um, there are statistics on it, but in Thailand it was reported that there were, you know, thousands of Twitter and Facebook accounts that had been established in order to do precisely this kind of work. It's not easy to do that. You have to set up an account, you have to give it a sufficient backstory and undertake a sufficient amount of activity so that the account looks real and doesn't get flagged by the censors as a fake account. So the trolls use these accounts to target. It's just one of the many ways in which human rights defenders are now under attack. And it's been reported, for instance, in Thailand that trolls have released addresses of activists, released details about their family, the whereabouts of their family, and so on. Reportedly, I think, with the intention of then uh, inspiring vigilante groups that also exist out there to take this information and act on it to transfer this online harassment into offline harassment as well. You mentioned the activists there, the human rights defenders exercising their, their freedoms and their rights. Is it in particular to anything or is it as a result of there being a level of oppression? Yes, in that specific case, it was a direct reaction to the fact that there had been military rule for some time and that even though at that stage the military rule was supposedly at an end and there was a transition towards a civilian democracy, they didn't see enough indicators that that democracy was genuine. As I mentioned before, there's a constitutionally protected minimum number of seats that the military needs to hold in the Senate, which obviously means a certain amount of legislative control as well. So the protesters were asking for things like constitutional reform. They were asking that certain limitations on fundamental freedoms that were also baked into the Constitution be revised. There was also talk of... Um, whether there should be reforms to the constitutional monarchy that exists in Thailand and just questions around uh, how the monarchy was operating and how the monarchy was using its sovereign wealth fund. Interesting, I guess there's quite a broad spectrum right across the globe when it comes to when it comes to justice issues. I was particularly interested in the fact that most of the human rights defenders being killed are those working to protect the land, environment or indigenous people's rights. Is this any surprise to you and do you have any experience of this given the continuous dominance of the exploitation of natural resources to meet energy and consumption demands globally? 
Oh, I wish I could say it was surprising, but sadly it isn't at all. As you've talked about already, in the scramble to exploit resources, many human rights are violated, and it's inevitable that human rights defenders will spring up in these spaces to protect the affected communities. But unfortunately, in the process, they can really upset some powerful forces, not only the authorities themselves, but of course the associated economic interest holders. Um, We've taken on a couple of cases in this space, So, for example, uh, we worked with a Filipina activist who was representing a community where farmers were seeking title over the land that they had historically been farming for decades. And this was as part of law reforms that had been promised by the government, but then had sort of fallen out of favour. In another case, we were working with a Vietnamese environmental rights group, and they were actually establishing an ecotourism resort in this mountain area, uh, where they were trying to cultivate like an ecological preservation area that could also be a site of religious observance. So it was meant to be a kind of social enterprise where the ecotourism profits then got reinvested into developing the preservation, as well as the kind of pilgrimage aspect of that work. But that became obviously too much of a lucrative funding stream, I suppose, in the eyes of the authorities there, because then these human rights defenders were jailed and the resort was confiscated, presumably to transfer that funding stream to someone else. You're listening to Horsehair Wigs with me, Evelyn McCafferty, in conversation with Doreen Chen this month. A little about this podcast. It's funded by Irish Aid and brought to you by Irish Rule of Law International, an NGO which uses the rule of law to tackle global injustice. You can find out more about its work on its website, irishruleoflaw.ie. Back now to this month's guest, Doreen Chen. I'd like to shift focus a little to your work with various authorities, supporting them on their human rights compliance and their counter-terrorism response. Tell us a little about that work. I mean, I think, unfortunately, we all have a relative awareness of terrorism, but, but let me just start with the definition as far as I see it. So terrorism is where an individual or a group uses violence or intimidation to try to achieve some kind of political outcome. This is a nebulous definition, obviously, because it's quite a nebulous phenomenon that is actually known for continually shifting. What we've seen now is that there's a rich tapestry of different actors out there, governments, international organisations, the private sector and so on, all working to counter the threat of terrorism. And I work with a few different types of these actors to try to centre the question of human rights. So in one sense, obviously, terrorists grossly violate the rights of affected communities, in particular victims and survivors of uh, terrorist attacks. So this is one lens of the work that I'm doing to to make sure that these rights remain in focus. However, with my background as a lawyer and litigator, my primary focus is in the space of the investigation and prosecution of terrorist cases. And I also think it's fairly well known through the news and popular culture that in recent times there's been what we would say are shortcomings in the extent to which these processes have sometimes adhered to human rights law. We've heard a lot over the years about extensive detention, extraordinary rendition, torture of suspects and so on. Now, given terrorist methods, it's completely understandable that it's not popular to think in terms of the rights that they should have when they're being prosecuted. Nevertheless, respecting human rights, including the right to a fair trial of a terrorist suspect, is a cornerstone, I believe, to a society that respects the rule of law. So in my mind, for the rule of law and for democracy to be resilient, 
We need to be consistent in our approaches. We need to follow the law. We need to be level-headed, especially in cases like terrorism when the circumstances are triggering us to behave otherwise. And so as much as it's a seeming departure from the other work that I do, I think that the underlying theme of rule of law and of democratic resilience is why I do this work. Yeah, it's super interesting, I suppose, to have best practice that you can apply globally. But is that what the work is about or is it very fragmented depending on the authority that's requested your services? Well, I think it is quite fragmented, but maybe that's a good thing because apparently we shouldn't even be calling it best practice anymore, but we should be calling it good practices. And those practices can differ fundamentally depending on what the context has been. And that's a context that's really kind of evolved a lot in the last two decades since 9-11. We saw, I think, a seismic shift that happened after 9-11 in terms of counterterrorism responses and the institutional landscape. The the landscape that we have now, I described a number of different actors earlier, that's something that really just sprung up after 9-11 and has really completely changed the scene and the approach as we know it. And I think somehow at the same time, which is ironic, it's also somehow catalyzed the emergence of the modern terrorist threats that we face as well. Now, just thinking about, you know, how have things evolved since 9-11? I think if you think back to that time, you might recall that back then the language of war was heavily used. So we talked about the war on terror and so on. And I think that a corollary of that was that there was this attendant marginalization of human rights concerns in terms of investigations and prosecutions at the time, because there was basically more of a wartime mentality about it. We're 20 years down the track now, and I think this has changed and is continuing to change. And I think that my invitation to participate in these policy spaces as an international human rights lawyer is evidence of that. But there's still a long way to go in that sense. Where are you working? Can you disclose those details? (laughs) Not really, (laughs) but uh, kind of all over the place. So my work uh, takes me to very interesting countries uh, all over the world for this kind of work. It really depends where the need is and where we are. Most of this work is on an invitation basis, which is really encouraging if you think about it. So this is situations where uh, the local authority has actually invited another actor to come in and to provide technical assistance. So we just, we go where the need is. But yeah, I've, I've gone, for instance, to the Middle East and to Africa most recently doing this kind of work. I was reading that um, the latest statistics in the, the Global Terrorism Index from ReliefWeb, a UN service, Afghanistan is the country most impacted by terrorism for the fourth consecutive year, but it's the Sahel region in sub-Saharan Africa which is now the epicenter of terrorism. Um, The Sahel accounts for more terrorism deaths than both South Asia and the Middle East and North Africa combined. Deaths in the Sahel constituted 43% of the global total in 2022 compared to just 1% in 2007. That's such a hike. Given your experience drawing up measures for counter-terrorism human rights support... Can you explain to our listeners the drivers of terrorism and the subsequent delivery of a counter-terrorism response and whether an understanding of the drivers can or even should impact that response? 
this is a this is a million dollar question. It's probably a billion dollar question or a multi billion dollar question. Um, so there's actually an entire field of work that is dedicated to this very thing, preventing and countering violent extremism. So there are specialists that just focus on this, and it's distinct but parallel to what I'm doing. So I wouldn't be able to claim expertise in this precisely. But, of course, I do see a lot of this come up in the work that I do. And what I've seen in multiple countries suggests that terrorists are masters at exploiting a state's socioeconomic weak points. They recruit from among the poor and the disenfranchised. They take advantage of weak legal systems to shelter and to run criminal enterprises to fund their efforts. They exploit a state's natural resources. Um, They capitalize on a community's discontent at being marginalized and discriminated against, and they claim to have the answer. So though while I work in more of the investigation and prosecution space, this is precisely why that prevention field that I mentioned exists and complements the work that we do. To me, what is the answer? I mean, it's not a simple answer, but I think the answer is we need to lift human rights standards across the board in order to eliminate opportunities for terrorists to come in and exploit weaknesses. And at the same time, I think we need to continually consider the link between the prevention and the prosecution spaces so that we can ensure that we're making our best and a really proper 360 effort to try to eliminate terrorism together. Very tricky to do in the Sahel region. Um, you know, it's been tried and tested for multiple, multiple years and so nuanced. Some of the conflicts are also so cyclical. But as you said, I think strengthening certainly the rule of law across the board can only further there being a level of justice. Doreen, thank you for your time today. It was great to have you on the podcast. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much, Evelyn. And that was Doreen Chen of Destination Justice wrapping up the show this month. If you like the podcast, please do share it widely. Thanks as always to our funders, Irish Aid, and thanks to you for listening. From me, Evelyn McClafferty, and Irish Rule of Law International, until next time. Listener.